0: The ziggurat for fighter jocks outside of the great city of Los Angeles is still alive. These people in the high deserts of Miroc were still chasing the dreams with the x planes. And this is Cleo History, Episode 4, Dinosaurs in Space, Part 4 of our Spatial Series. My name is Matt. And I'm R.C. And we are going to discuss the X-15, the X-20, and some parts of the SR-71 because this is a crucial story that underlines in the background from the idea of like the standard space odyssey of the 20th century. You know of the Apollo program, you might know of the Mercury program, and you might know about the Gemini program. You definitely know Yuri Gagarin. We covered him previously. But there's an underlying current that created astronauts not in capsules, but in a space plane. And that was with the X-15. Following the same naming conventions as the X-1 Bell, which we covered in the first episode, the X-15 was a continuation of this project to create these rocket planes. Uh, The North American X-15 was a great leap forward with uh, some pretty advanced technology around it in order to uh, sustain uh, high temperatures from going that high. And also was launched in the similar way of the X 1, basically by a plane and ran as a rocket plane, you know, launching off of an airplane itself. Now.
1: So, the format for this episode might be a tad bit different than the rest because we don't really feel like we need to tell this story kind of chronologically like we've been doing because this is more of just a tangent, right? It slots in between the previous episode and the next one, but it's not directly part of the narrative we're trying to tell, right? But this is just probably the most important part of the space shuttle development, maybe more important than any of the other episodes we've done so far, so we thought it would be very important to cover this
0: period. But this is a very forgotten part in space history, and it's really hard to fit it into the narrative. Uh, because, you know, you think of the great story, which is what we're trying our best to tell, but there's no way to really fit in where uh, the X-15 is in this great story of the space race. But the X-15 gives us some important names. We have uh, Scott Crossfield, the first person to fly the X-15, Joe Engel, a future pilot of the space shuttle, Joseph A. Walker, the man to go the highest into space, earning two astronaut wings, which is a pretty high achievement for a man who wasn't in a capsule. He's and the
1: first person to go into space twice, actually. First
0: person to go into space twice. And a familiar name to most people who know anything about space, Neil Armstrong, who got his start originally as an Air Force test pilot, then moving on to the X-15 program, and then being picked up to be a Apollo astronaut.
1: Mm-hmm if anything was like the ziggurat, the X-15 was it. It was the proving ground for the best of the best pilots, not just going in a capsule being kind of guided most of the way, but these people were actually flying an aircraft. They had to maintain like the trajectory going up and going in. The danger was a lot higher than I think it ever was for Apollo. And, you know, they were landing on a runway and reusing the plane. So they built three of these things. And as Matt was saying earlier, it very advanced technology. They, they, we're using inconel x which is a uh, nickel steel alloy i believe and it was basically incredibly heat resistant but as part of that it was incredibly difficult to actually like form and work with because it's incredibly heat resistant so you pretty much had to cast pour the pieces and like filing them down and stuff was very difficult but it wasn't ablative where you know you kind of like the capsule reentry. uh like heat shields where they kind of just burn off material to vent heat. The X-15 would basically just able to absorb the heat into its body and then just dissipate it after landing because it wasn't actually going into orbit. So it was just going on a parabolic arc out of the atmosphere and then reentering. So the reentry heat uh, was far lower than even like the Vostok or mercury capsules would endure. So in general, it could just be built to a lower tolerance, but It was a rocket plane. It flew using, I think, hypergolic fuels. So it used the XLR-99 engine for most of its flights. Uh, This wasn't really used anywhere else. It was pretty much just developed for the X-15. But we don't really know the high limits of what it could have done because the program got cancelled before they really managed to reach the maximum possible speed. Though they did kind of push it on the last flight, getting to Mach 6.7. But this is just kind of where it doesn't fit in that much with the rest of the narrative cuz it's just kind of an anomaly at this point in time in the 1950s cuz it was designed in 1955 it first flew in 1959 and the rest of the world being the soviets was just using capsules they no real there there was a soviet research rocket plane but it never actually flew Pretty much just jet technology was what both sides were focusing most of their energies on. So the X-15 kind of existed in its own sphere, where once the X-1 was successful, everybody just kind of didn't care about rocket planes, and it was just kind of the ugly stepsister of the program.
0: And the parabolic arch is also an important uh, thing to touch on, because although the story of uh, the first Mercury launches... Also consists of no one going into orbit. It consists of uh, short hops into space where uh, Shepard and uh, Grissom did short hops into space. But that was, n- it was not necessary to have a rocket do that because mm-hmm. clearly what was going on in the background over at Edwards Air Force Base in California is a space plane was being developed that could do what Mercury was doing in order to get a man into space. And could potentially have gotten a man into space earliest, re- referring back to the MISS program. But yeah. that wasn't the focus of uh, the political understanding of, from Eisenhower or the creation of NASA. They didn't want that. They wanted to use the rockets because the rockets had a dual meeting for ICBM development and also a civilian space program. And they were seeing the Soviets do it anyway. So it was more of a copycat catch up. Because the Soviets were already ahead. There's no use focusing all of the efforts and media into something like the X-15, where you can focus a bunch of media and create state-sanctioned celebrities in a uh, rocket launch. Also, less of a chance of them doing something wrong, because they didn't have to fly it. They just Mm -hmm. had to sit there and uh, push buttons.
1: Yeah, which originally in the program design, there was a plan. I don't think it was ever really widely adopted, but it was kind of planned out and mapped out for the X-15 to basically be put on an Atlas rocket like uh, you know the Mercury capsules were because the whole idea was you have the capsule and then the next logical step is just launch the space
0: plane because you can land it wherever. you know It's more maneuverable, all that stand, kind of stuff. Stand it up on its side, mm-hmm. strap the rocket to its belly. Uh, looks very familiar to what Not we-
1: that yet. This is on top. You Ooh. don't get to the belly yet, because the whole idea was basically you just put it on top like the Mercury capsule is. It would look kind of kind of goofy, but uh, the the whole idea was well, the you know in 1955,
0: an elongated Nike rocket. Yes,
1: in 1955, when they're doing the like development of Mercury and all that stuff, they're like, well, we already have the X15 in the works. You know, it can already kind of. Planes are something we know, you know, so if we just throw one of these into space, there's a lot more known knowns than there are with a capsule because nothing like that's really gone up yet. But it was the uh, Vostok Yuri Gagarin that pretty much killed that program because basically they just need to do something cheap and fast and easy.
0: And that's a a good point to bring up because the X-15 is an extremely expensive plane. Uh, just like uh, a div- kind of cousin in the development of the X-15 is the SR-71 Blackbird as well, mm-hmm. uh, instead of uh, using the material that X-15 was using, it was using titanium as its body. Yeah. But uh, both of those planes, who have extremely high altitudes, extremely fast speeds, uh, are extremely expensive to develop, yes. completely different than the Mercury capsule, which... Was relatively cheap in comparison, mm. and we already had an excess of mercury, of redstone, or Atlas rockets, which we were developing as you know ICBMs to shoot into the Soviets. So instead of taking the warhead, you can put the little capsule on top. And it was a similar idea with the Gemini program as well, just a bigger capsule. The only uh, the reason the cost overruns for NASA, where you got like an insane budget, was for Apollo, but that's just because. A space plane, although cheaper than Apollo, couldn't land on the moon. It could go into orbit if you really put in the money, but the actual cost of the reusable uh, space plane is more expensive initially, whereas Apollo needed to... Uh, it would, The pod itself, the capsule itself, was pretty cheap, but the entire apparatus and uh, landing capabilities on the moon was a super expensive part and developing the Saturn five rocket. Yeah. But if you think the upfront cost is super expensive, but the uh, repeat, repetitive costs of developing and refitting a space capsule is extremely expensive or developing or building a brand new space capsule because you already basically mm-hmm. burnt it up and it cannot be used again. Whereas the cost is cheaper in the long run. If you are using X-15, As a shorter sort of spatial standard. And that's why a mirror we like to look at today is there's a reason Elon Musk, although a bad guy, is trying to do reusable rockets because he's trying to get the best of both worlds, which is the lower long run cost of reusability with the efficiency and power of a rocket to just blunt force an object into space.
1: Which it's basically like high initial capital cost versus lower overall program cost, right? Like you spend a lot of money the first couple of years, but then you don't have to build a new X-15 every single time you want to launch one. So the thing can launch 199 times at a very high uh, rate of reuse because there's almost nothing. You just need to put more fuel in and check the metal and make sure it's all good. But uh, yeah, it, basically, so the X-15 kind of after... Yuri Gagarin went into space, which there's an argument that could be made that if the X-15 was accelerated, taken more seriously by NASA, it probably could have gone to space air quotes faster than Gagarin could have because it probably could have gone. They, basically, they, they were going procedurally, you know, one step after the other, and they wanted kind of the face of the program which is the mercury seven to be the first ones in space because they were the state-sanctioned celebrities whereas the x-15 pilots were just air force nobodies like scott crossfield's a big name at that point but he's just kind of the initial attachment to the program to kind of get it running and then after that it's just nobody's like neil armstrong and uh, michael j adams um you know just just air force guys they're not really in it for the celebrity, they're in
0: it for that like G nine pay or whatever. Climbing the Ziggurat, yes, exactly. even even though the Ziggurat's peak has moved to being an astronaut. Mm-hmm. And the cost overruns is another uh, thing we need to discuss as well, because if you're bringing these things to uh, Congress for funding, which is the main death of the X fifteen. I know we haven't gotten too much into the actual specifics of the X fifteen yet, but. We're just telling the overarching story. Um, the X-15, trying to justify that to a Congress that is going to increase a NASA budget to try and go to the moon is an extremely difficult prospect, especially when you have basically an underlying, like, competing space, even though it's not going to space, it's a competing, like, space development program.
1: Well, Yeah, why pay for suborbital flights when you're going to the moon, you know? Yeah. Like, why bother spending that money? And that was the large point of the X-15 was, what is it good for? You know, other than the fact that it goes Mach 6.7 and no other plane has ever gone that fast so far. uh, Well, what's the point? Like, what, what is its project goal other than just... Because, you know, going high, well, we have rockets for that now. Going fast, well, you know, we're going out of the atmosphere in space, the equivalent of, like, Mach 25, you know. And
0: another thing that is important to know about the X-15 story, or the development of the space shuttle in general, mm -hmm. uh, without following the standard story, of american space development is uh, there is this thing called the x-20 also known as the dinosaur yes which was a fun advertising name but when you talk about the space shuttle and you try and start off and you look at the initial development of it the x-20 has seemed to outshine its uh, little brother the x-15 except the x-20 was never born yeah it never existed
1: effectively the x-20 was just a concept for a plane much like big gemini the The whole plan was you know after the gemini program we'll uh, just make a larger gemini capsule and launch it on the same hardware but then they did apollo instead right after the x-15 they were coming up with the concept for the x-20 which was basically the x-15 uh, atlas program where they just launch it into space on top of a rocket but instead they were going to use a different design which the X-20 basically didn't have rockets on the back. It was kind of flatter. So it was never actually built, so it's kind of hard to describe it because it's all just concept art effectively. It, basically, it just attaches to the rocket cleanly with wings that kind of wrap around. And it's, it's, it's more of a lifting body design than an actual like plane design. So it's a lot more cubic and boxy than you would imagine a plane would be. But That's because that whole lifting body concept in the mid to late 60s had kind of been thought up and tested and they realized it could work. You know, you don't have to have it be like an F-104 super sleek plane design. You could have it be real boxy and basically the body shape of the plane gives you most of the lift, especially when you're just doing a glide profile and you're coming down straight over where you're going to be landing and you don't have to fly a long distance with jet engines or
0: whatever. It's falling gracefully.
1: Yes, but I think part of the problem I have uh, as a fan of the X-15 is the X-20 steals a lot of the oxygen out of the room most times because it has a fun name and it, it sounds kind of dumb and it never went anywhere because it was it had, only supposed to see one person.
0: It also has very nice mid-century modern sci-fi art in a lot of its advertising and its development came with a lot of advertising mm-hmm. as well. So if you are a weird like aliens in space blasters like sci-fi helmet fan and you see something like the x20 that's going to stick in your brain more than the x15 which is currently a thing in the real world but you aren't going to have a lot of marketing about that because when we already have a state sanctioned nasa space development program also the x15 is a military project which comes with some classified uh covers ups as well
1: Yeah, and the X-20 was originally planned for uh, the Manned Orbiting Laboratory, which was an Air Force program to basically, instead of having uh, automatic cameras in space that would take their satellite photographs on film and then deposit the canisters in space, and it was kind of, ran. you know, it, it was a film camera, so you it, they were really high-quality photographs, but you kind of get what you get. The idea was to have astronauts... Air Force astronauts in a laboratory that were able to take pictures of whatever you wanted. You just send a radio message up, tell them, hey, take a picture of this at this at this time. And that's what the X-20 was supposed to service, was it was supposed to be much like the X-15, a rapid reuse space plane that could be landed, flown to America, launched quickly. They could have a fleet of these things. But then we landed on the moon and that'll be the next episode. But it basically never happened. It was just a concept.
0: And I'm hoping that uh, you can see the parallels between these plans, which have already, which are existing, like the early beginnings of our initial ending topic, are still in development and are floating in people's heads since the early 50s. Even before we send a man into space with the Mercury program, there is these thoughts on what we want to do with a reusable space plane that could resupply a space station and Mm -hmm. could be used for, at at this time, defense measures, but the thought would surely shift to more civilian international measures as well.
1: But Basically, going forward, this is your reminder. Of any of the topics we've talked about in the past few episodes and any of the ones we will talk about, the X-15 is the most important for understanding the story of the space shuttle. We're, we're going over it very briefly today, but basically the space shuttle is the X-15. It's just an upgraded version of it. Almost every development, the X-15 came up with such as reaction control thrusters for a plane body in space, uh, re-entry computers, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the flight profile for a flat blunt end, uh, plane with wings to enter. Um, that's all X-15, I mean, even more than Apollo, because the, the shuttle basically doesn't have that much connection at all to the Apollo or Gemini or Mercury programs. Almost no overlap whatsoever,
0: really. But it has the NASA legacy, yes. and it comes with the story of uh, American space exploration. Yes. Because you... and it's something that we've talked about a lot uh, in pre-production for the, this series is it's really hard to try and uh, tell this story without including the context, but the context is so vastly different than our ending topic that it's, it, it's just hard to tell the story without telling it in its entirety, mm. but there's too many tangents to go off on. And I like the details of the X-15, which uh, we will, you know, cover in this episode briefly, Uh, like R.C. said, are extremely crucial to the development of the space shuttle, but it doesn't really fit in the overarching story. If you're ever curious on places you can see the X-15 in the United States, there's one in the National Air and Space Museum, and there's also one in Dayton, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the uh, two that exist that were actually flown by the pilots who did the X 15. There's also some mock ups that are floating around uh, one at Edwards Air Force Base, one at another Air Force Base, uh, and uh, looks like there's one in Evergreen Aviation Space Museum in Oregon as well.
1: Yeah. The third X 15 um, crashed and tragically killed Michael Adams and was not able to be rebuilt. Uh, there was a second one that also crashed, but that one was rebuilt. Um, that was the X-15A2. Uh, so, But basically, it was brief history, design, 1955, X program, natural successor to the X-2. X-2 didn't really succeed that well. X-2 was kind of a gimmick, whatever. They went on to the X-15. It was basically just expanding the scope of the entire program by almost 10 times, effectively going from Mach 1 to Mach 2 to Mach 7 just whatever, going from flying no higher than 70,000 feet to flying close to 400,000 feet. But basically, the engineers at North American were like, well, if we're going to test planes, we're going to test planes. We're just going to do the absolute maximum you could possibly do with a plane and figure it out. So I finally got into production in 1959, as I said earlier. Uh, it was effectively just dropped from a B-52, much like the Bell X-1, but it would fly... Uh, It would land, it had skids on the bottom instead of wheels because of the speeds it was landing at. It had a front wheel, but the two back skids, it would basically land uh, back up and just skid for a while until it would slow down enough to put the wheels down so they wouldn't explode. Um, It was basically a progressive launch system where... Uh, In the 50s, 1959 would start flying. It would just kind of ease into the speed, and slowly the missions would get faster and faster and faster until 1962 when it finally went into space. Uh, Some could argue that it could have gone in 1960 or 1961, but that's not important right now. Um, Yeah, Scott Crossfield was the first initial pilot. The program was broadly expanded to a few people, uh, which we've named some of them. I'm not going to name I'll name all of them actually. Michael J. Adams, who was the one, only person killed in the X 15 program. You had Neil Armstrong, who, first man on the moon, also flew the X 15 quite a bit. Um, Scott Crossfield, who is probably one of the best test pilots of all time, not that well known. Uh, he competed with Chuck Yeager, as we said in the earlier episodes. Uh, William H. Dana was involved in the program, didn't really do that much else. Joe Engel also flew the shuttle, another really good test pilot. Uh, William J. Knight, you know, he flew it the fastest, I believe. So John B. McKay, um, he also flew it. I, I don't think a lot of these guys are very well known outside of the X-15 program is the issue because a lot of them were just Air Force. So they just kind of flew in Vietnam and then became test pilots and flew in Korea
0: and or assumed roles within NASA but didn't actually get launched into yes. space to be a legendary astronaut. Or they did go to space for, for not a very important reason because I'd ask yourself or ask a person you know to name an Apollo astronaut past Apollo 11.
1: Yeah, like Forrest S. Peterson, who was in the Navy, flew the X-15 five times and then became an admiral. Uh Robert A. Rushworth, who flew it 34 times, the most out of anyone in the program. He was in the Air Force. Um, Nothing else, really. Uh, Moulton O. Thompson, who flew it 14 times. He was just a NASA pilot. I believe he just retired. Uh, Joseph A. Walker, who flew it the highest. He was cool. He died tragically with the uh, XB-70. He was flying a chaser plane in an F-104 and uh, crashed into the XB-70, which is another hyper-advanced research plane, bomber. It, first bomber to fly Mach 3. Uh, one of them was destroyed. Joseph A. Walker, incredible test pilot, incredible pilot, killed tragically but not revolved with the X-15 program. It was a completely different death. And then Robert M. White. Um, so all these guys, names not really known, but they're all incredible pilots i mean you had to be to fly the x-15 uh you know landing at probably close to mach 3 because there were no air brakes there was no real slowing down system i don't believe there were any drug parachutes you pretty much just landed at whatever speed you hit the ground at Uh, and the program actually did continue until 1968. so they were doing 199 missions over the course of close to 10 years and they were flying right up until you know apollo 8 when we actually made it to the moon and then 1968, the program's finally canceled. Not really that much fanfare around its cancellation. Nobody cared by that point. But that does lead us right into 1968, when in the future we'll be talking about NASA, thinking about what they're going to do after the moon landings in the next couple of years.
0: It's in 1968, for a further context, Richard Nixon is president. Uh, there is a Apollo 8 has recent, re- recently orbited the moon. Apollo 11 is on its way within the year and uh, there is a raging war in Vietnam and a looming financial crisis only a few years away.
1: Yeah. But we'll get into that in the next
0: episode. episode. <laughs> anyway, this has been Clio History, Episode 4, Dinosaurs in Space. Our coverage of the X-15 throughout this episode and this is just only one episode of our space shell series if you like this episode you can leave us a review you can share it we are available wherever you get podcasts we are on twitter at Clio history you can email us at Clio history podcast at gmail.com and uh go ahead and uh, enjoy the series and we thank you so much for listening bye